Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today we're with Dr. George A. Yancey, the author of Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Color Blindness and Anti-Racism. He's a professor of sociology at Baylor University. George, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, could you give the audience just a little background on your theological orientation or church traditions you've been part of? Yeah, uh, I became a Christian at 19. And at first, at first I went to a predominantly black church that was sort of like this offshoot. Uh, but eventually I joined the Southern Baptist. And I was a Southern Baptist for quite a while. Uh, I left the Southern Baptist and really was part of non-denominational churches until recently where I joined a Southern Baptist church. I didn't know there was a Southern Baptist at the time. Uh, I guess I'm as comfortable with them theologically as anybody. I, I have my disagreements, but uh, I think that's probably where I'm at. All right. So um, can you start by uh, defining, uh, how do you define the race problem in America? Would you call it racism or racialization or racial alienation or something else? Well, yeah, I think about America as a racialized society, which basically means race matters that impacts our lives and impacts some people more negatively, some races more negatively than others. So uh, so in that sense, how, how I see it, of course, that racialized element does lead to racial to racial alienation. And while I don't deny the existence of racism, both institutional and otherwise, I like to focus first on the fact that we have, that race matters, it matters against the interests of certain racial groups, what can we do from there? And then we can work it out from that point forward. All right, so you don't start with the idea that America is a racist country. Uh, I prefer not to. Okay, and we'll see why later as mm -hmm. we get dive deeper yeah. into this. Okay, so um, could you start by, uh, like your title of your book says, which I found so refreshing when I discovered it, because most people tend to um, lay on one side or the other, the anti-racist or the colorblind view. So it was really refreshing to me to see a book that's, that's identifying both of those alternatives and saying, hold it, there's something better, there's something more unifying. Um, but before we get to the, your unifying view, um, how would you define anti-racism? And could you go over some of its basic, uh, basic strengths and weaknesses? Well, yeah, so anti-racism, I want to get a pop definition of it, the way people who are using it in popular society would define it. And so I read a lot of pop anti-racism books. And I came, you know, I tried to boil it down to as to as few uh, ideas that transcend all the books. And I, I came up with three. There's probably more. One is racism is prevalent in all, all of our society. Two is we must be very intentional in dealing with racism. And three is the responsibility of whites is to do what people call want them to do. Now, the first two tenets, I, you know, I have no problems with. I agree. I agree that racism is is a problem throughout our society, and we'd be intentional in dealing with it. But the solution is not for whites to do what people of color want them to do because of the whole notion of human depravity, that uh, we people of color have human depravity too. And we would misuse a situation just like we've been misused by whites historically and even in some ways today. So, uh, so that's, that's sort of the, you know, I think anti-racism is good for finding problems of race. Its solutions are not so great. So that's how I look at anti-racism. So could you go into a little more depth about the, the strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I think the strength is that uh, anti-racism takes racism seriously. And so uh, whereas some people might want to blow off things such as uh, 
privilege. Things such as how, how, how our historical racism has impacted us today. Anti-racism shines a light on these things so that we recognize that these are problems. But its main weaknesses is that it does not, uh, it does not offer solutions that are usable. And it's not just my opinion, that's what research says, that people who research this for a living look at diversity programs. They don't work, generally speaking. Looking at how efforts to, to, uh, to force companies to hire people uh, by, by uh, changing the job requirements, things of this nature, actually backfired. So anti-racism actually does not work for the goals that it claims to want to, to achieve. And is there a problem also with uh, the tendency to look for racism everywhere that you end up exaggerating or finding cases where it's not actually racism and then creates a lot more conflict over that? Yeah, that is, that is a potential problem with anti-racism. And, and, and yeah, there is, a, there is a tendency to what we call play the race card, uh, which is to accuse them of being racist when it's not warranted. All right. And um, so you say a fair amount in your book, you're talking about the uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. uh, trainings and orientations in the corporate world. So could you say more about how that functions and how that can actually make things worse? Yeah, so most of your large companies have some sort of diversity, inclusion, equity department or, or groups or individuals. And what we do know about diversity training is that sometimes you'll get a temporary reduction of prejudice but in the long term, that reduction goes away. So it doesn't make things better. And how you do it can actually make things worse. One study shows that uh, if, you, if you teach about white privilege, at least in certain ways, you do not create more sympathy for people of color. You create more hostility for marginalized whites. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's, there's studies that show a backlash to these programs that sometimes whites leave these programs even with lower opinions of people of color than they did going into the programs. So it's hard to find research actually that shows that these programs are effective at all. And could you say something about uh, racial disparities? Um, people more from the conservative end, they'll look at the racial disparities, admit they're there and that they were caused um, by racism, mm -hmm. yesterday's racism, but um, they would say this isn't necessarily evidence of racism today and they're not worthy of being called systemic racism. Yeah, I guess it depends on how you define racism. So you define racism as you have to have personal hatred towards another, then that's a point. But I don't think we've ever defined racism that way. For example, uh, look at Jim Crow legislation. You did not have to personally hate African-Americans for them to suffer from that type of racism. So our structures, our, you know, our institutions can sometimes do racism without having sort of a hatred being part of that. And this is what a lot of research shows. Uh, a lot of research shows that that there are ways in which uh, people of color are are impacted. Uh, you know, the criminal justice system is one example. There are certain crimes that uh, African tend to commit more of, such as crack cocaine, are punished more heavily than those that whites commit, such as powder cocaine. Things like this also are, are a type of racism. So... Um... Yeah, I know that we we're talking about Anthony Bradley, and he says when it comes to these issues, we see the disparities. He says we need to follow the data mm -hmm. as opposed to following an ideology that right. immediately says, aha, racial disparities, therefore systemic racism. Mm -hmm. 
I would agree. I would agree. And sometimes it is going to be racism, but not all the time. You know, as a social scientist, what you learn is that usually no one factor creates disparities. So could could racism be part of it? I think it is, but it's not all of it. It may not be. It may not have the majority effect. So we have to be aware of other dynamics as well. Right. Alrighty, and so uh, colorblind view, could you um, define that? And if there's, if there's other terms that it tends to go by, could you talk about those too? Yeah, so a colorblind view is basically a view that uh, the way we defeat racism is we ignore race. That if I no longer see skin color, then I can't be racist against you, and therefore we defeated racism. Uh, the you know, a colorblind perspective is one that emphasizes equality. And the mindset behind it is that if I ignore a race, then I cannot mistreat you. I just treat you as my equal. Now, on the surface, that's great. There are times I am colorblind, such as when I grade my students' exams. But if we have wounds from previous and current racism, institutional racism, personal racism, then ignoring it doesn't make the wound go away. It, the wound just becomes worse. That's the problem with colorblindness. It, it ignores these, these problems and they can become worse. Okay, and any other names for the view that um, that people use? Uh, the problem is I can't think of it up to my head, though. Okay, and how about strengths? Uh, you've touched on it already, but could you mm -hmm. go into more depth about strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I, I think the strength is that equality probably is a laudable goal, that we should be shooting for, for equality, that, uh, that that makes sense to us. Uh, I think the weakness, as I pointed out, though, is that if you're going to ignore race, then you have to ignore all the problems created by race, and then those problems don't get resolved. Right. And I've heard some people say, well, I'm colorblind, but I don't ignore race. I just don't judge somebody based yeah. on their race. Yeah. So, uh, so in fact, though, is the movement today we see that uh, people call colorblind, is it not actually more of an anti-anti-racist movement? Some of it is a backlash towards anti-racism efforts. There's no doubt about that. The whole backlash towards CRT is, is really not a backlash towards CRT. It's really a backlash towards what they perceive of as anti-racism, in my opinion. And so uh, in your book, you seem to address um, colorblindness more as part of the, the white community. Uh, so many of the people I listen to are black thinkers uh, like Coleman Hughes, mm -hmm. uh, John McCorder, Glenn Lowry, that are go towards more of a colorblind view. Coleman Hughes definitely used that term, mm -hmm. the other two less so. Uh, so from their perspective, they they want to empower black people, and mm -hmm. they see um, the anti-racist view as disempowering black people. Yeah, and they're they're focusing more on traditional ideas like initiative and responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, um, what, what's your would your dialogue be like with them? Well, uh, I think my dialogue would be with them is that you know I get it and. Uh, and obviously, I'm a critic of anti-racism, so I'm not saying that they're wrong about the critique of anti-racism, but we have very real problems, and we have to confront those problems. We can't ignore those problems. So, what's their solution to those very real problems that we have? You know, uh, 
you know, I just point out the criminal justice system. What, what are we going to do about that? We can see problems in our educational system and our economic systems. So, well, how, you know, so if you want to hold on to the ideas of colorblindness, what does that mean in solving our problems? Right. And I see them sometimes uh, backing away from anything that might sound anti-racist. They want mm -hmm. to seem to want to be as contrarian as possible. Yeah. And so I think it actually strengthened their cause if they focused more on some of those, you know, problems with the criminal justice system, mass incarceration, yeah. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So would you say that it seems to me that if you go back to 1960, an anti-racist perspective is far more relevant. And today, the farther we put um, the worst sorts of racism behind us, the more it should look like colorblindness. Would you agree to that? No, because I think both both systems are flawed. You know, so I, I you know that implies that one system wins out over the other. I don't think that that's the approach we want. Okay, so now for um, your view, you've identified mm -hmm. the two um, views that are at odds with each other and don't yeah. seem to be getting us anywhere. So you talk about mutual accountability. Yeah. Um, how do you, if you could give a brief definition of that first and then go into some uh, more depth. Yeah, so the way I look at it is both of these systems are flawed because both of them are saying, look, you know, you do what we want and then we'll have racial harmony. And the way I see it is we'll have racial harmony when we actually start talking to each other in a productive way. So my system is really based on learn, teaching people how to have productive conversations, collaborative conversations, so that we can work out our racial problems. And maybe our solution looks more like the colorblind perspective or more like the anti-racial perspective, but we've all had our say and we agree on what we're doing and move forward in that way. Okay, so I see the mutual in there. Uh, mm -hmm. You're talking about collaborative conversations, but where's the accountability? Is this white people holding black people accountable and black people holding white people accountable? What do you mean? Well, you know, I've also called mutual obligations and, and stuff. All I mean to say is that we are all accountable for having a productive conversation. We can't say to someone, no, I'm not going to have a conversation with you because of uh, I don't like your ideas or like that. We must all be accountable to listening to other ideas and come to our conclusions. All righty. And uh, what could you lay out some more of the, the foundational points mm -hmm. of mutual accountability? Sure. So think about it this way. If we want to persuade people to do something, uh, we can either try to beat them over the head, we can try to shame them into it, and some will comply just to skip the shaming, but they won't change their hearts, right? Or we can dialogue with them in a way to shape them. Here's what research says about dialogue. Dialogue can be effective if we build rapport, if we agree where they have a good point, we find areas of agreement. In other words, we can build community but deal with the racial issues, or we can continue the path of polarization. Where even if your side wins, all it does is win enough to survive for the day because the other side is going to build up its forces too. So that's why I think this is a superior approach. So um, some would say, uh, I mean, working for mutual solutions is great, but if one side is mm -hmm. totally wrong, um, don't worry uh, about offending them. I mean, all sorts of people were telling Martin Luther King to settle down and you're causing all this trouble, you're stirring up uh, conflict. Um, so there's a place for allowing conflict mm -hmm. to exist, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, look, my approach is not about uh, people acquiescing. My approach is we convince people, but we convince people in a way that's that's community building instead of polarizing. So if there's unnecessary polarization, it's really not accomplishing anything. Right, and so we're all accountable to, to stop the polarization before it happens by engaging the techniques of collaborative conversation. All righty. So, and in your chapter five, you talk about um, there's actual research, actual evidence that supports the uh, mutual accountability model. Could you mm -hmm. give us some examples? Well, my favorite study is the one from, I think, Dobbins and Calvich, where they look at companies and they look at their, their racial makeup of their managers and they come back five years later, they look at the racial makeup of their managers, and then they, they see what companies are doing. And the companies that engage what I would call more anti-racism approaches, such as mandatory diversity training, uh, changing the job applications, so you know the job tests a lot more people to be hired, uh, set up grievance committees, they actually have fewer managers of color five years later. The ones that, engage, that basically go to white managers and say, hey, help us, have a conversation with us, help us to recruit people of color as managers. So that's a cloud conversation. They have more, five years later, they have more managers of color. So to me, that's the, one of the most powerful evidence of this. Well, I mean, we all know, we've all been kids and we know what it's like to have a parent or a teacher or a boss back us into a corner. You have to do this as opposed mm -hmm. to letting us find out yeah. what actually works and letting us do it from our own goodwill. Mm -hmm. So um, any, what other research besides that? Well, I mean, there's, there's uh, research on, on contact hypothesis. Then the recognition of having contact with other races actually lessens racial bias. So uh, there's research showing that uh, when we develop a group identity, in other words, when I identify with people all across the country, uh, that that reduces prejudice as well. Uh, so there's there's research that club conversation or some variation of it has worked in therapeutic relationships uh, in the educational settings. So there's all sorts of uh, scattered research that shows that this is the path. Okay, and since you are a follower of Christ, uh, what would you say is the biblical theological basis for mutual accountability? I would say the notion of human depravity. You know, it's a central notion of who we are as Christians, because without human depravity, we wouldn't need Christ. Uh, so I think that that's the key, because human depravity says that if any group decides that they have the answers, chances are they don't. And unless we're able to talk to one another to find out what my shortcomings are, what my blinders are, then I'm going to put forth an answer that's going to feed my people, but not others. Only by having a conversation, a healthy conversation, can we find solutions that have common ground for everyone. And uh, what sort of uh, particular scriptures, verses, or Bible stories would you, um, would you, would you relate to? Uh, I like the story of the uh, early church when the, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the two types, the, 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 two, the, the two types of Jews and the women were not being taken care of. And All so right. the community had to get together in order to find a solution. And so they got people from both sides of the dispute, and they talk through a solution. Uh, some men would stay back and take care of the women, others would go and preach the word. That's, to me, a great example of cloud conversation. Okay. Yeah, and I was just reading about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, mm. um, relating to the Gentiles and circumcision, so that would be a good example too, I guess. Alrighty. And 
so you devote a whole chapter to what uh, collaborative conversations, mutual accountability looks like in our daily lives. Mm -hmm. So um, what are some key points there? You know, it, it's really listening for understanding instead of arguing that we got Facebook, we argue or social media, we just argue. We don't try to listen to understand, you know, uh, so so that would be very important. Uh, it would be developing friends across the Western spectrum. And, and, and so we have something to listen to. Uh, I mean, these are some of the things we have to think about because cloud conversation could apply to things more than just race, obviously. Right. So how about you talking about guarding against our own arrogance? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're we usually are very convinced that we're correct uh, to the point to where we don't entertain alternative perspectives. So we have to be aware of that. that that's an ongoing human condition. Yeah, in this conversation, which is more of a an argument, there's uh, yeah. not much humility. Yeah. So, uh, and you're talking about compromising when necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because no one's going to get 100% what they want. So you have to decide what's really vital and what's not, and give up that which is not vital to get more help for that which is vital. Okay, yeah, when you write about it, it's like it's there's a long-term game. Don't mm -hmm. don't ask for 100% and expect to get it, but as long as there's, I can't remember the numbers you mm -hmm. used, but as long as you're moving in that direction, then you should be happy with that. And that, yeah. I know to a lot of people on the anti-racist side, that sounds like just giving up, selling out. Right, yeah. Yeah, well, I think it's important that we recognize that we're going to get everything. So what is it that's really important to us and fight for that? You know, because that's what life is. I mean, do, will you live with a, your wife or, or your spouse? Do you expect to get 100% what you want all the time? Of course not. So why should we expect it out here in the real world? Right, right. And, uh, but you also write about overcoming fear. Mm -hmm. How does that, how does that work? Well, you know, uh, whites have certain fears about racial conversations, right? Whites fear they'll be called a racist. If you color fear, they won't be taken seriously and called a whiner. So we have to overcome our fears, you know, it's, it's almost like when you're single trying to ask that girl out for a date. And you think all these things go wrong and then you wind up not asking her out. Well, with overcoming our fear of all these going to wrong, so we can engage in these conversations. Okay, can you say more about? Because um, I, I know you spend some time with that addressing white people and black people and their particular fears that they have to deal with. Yeah, so white fear of being called a racist because that obviously has dire consequences today. You're called a racist, hard time getting a job. People, don't you, I mean, it, it, it's a big stigma to hang around someone's neck, and so. Why do want to have a conversation? Because they have a conversation, they say the wrong thing, and they're called a racist. People of color have a fear of being accused of being a whiner, a complainer. Uh, and so they don't want the conversation because they don't want their, their, their felt needs to be dismissed. And on top of that, being insulted. Those are the fears we have to overcome if we want to improve race relations. Right. I think, and again, uh, McCorder and Lowry, when they're talking about anti-racist, one of their biggest critiques is you're turning black people into victims. Mm -hmm. um, in order for them to function as black people, to be authentic, they need to act like victims. And so, and long-term commitment. How's that relevant? Yeah, I mean, I've, this is something I'll probably be working on the rest of my life. 
I think we have to think generationally, not just for here and now. You know, build the movement so we can impact the next generation, impact the next generation, and until we really see a, a real movement of people engaging in climate conversations. So, um, what uh, then? That's in our daily lives as far as a larger movement um, that the churches are involved in, whole society. Um, what does that look like? You know, if our whole society gets into this, then we really change the way we deal with racial issues. The next time we have a racial shooting, for example, instead of people getting together and arguing with one another, we'll, we'll discuss it and we'll, just, we'll find solutions rather than just arguing. Solutions that people can all buy on. So I think there'll be better solutions than what we got today. So that's the sort of mindset that I would like to see us have. Okay, so, I mean, some of those conversations to even tolerate people saying certain things or asking certain things mm -hmm. would be seen as such a sign of weakness that mm -hmm. um, if you're coming from one of those uh, perspectives. So um, how would you, I mean, you mentioned the shootings. How would you yeah. um, envision a collaborative conversation around an issue? Say a major shooting just happened, policeman killed a yeah. black unarmed man. Yeah. Well, there's a there's an organization on the West Coast called Game Changers that's doing something similar. They're bringing people to the community, and they're bringing in uh, police officers, and they're engaging them in conversations. So that's one way you can do it in the larger community. All right, so you um, write a fair amount about Game Changers. Can you go into some more detail about them? Yeah, it's run by an ex-athlete, I think, pro football player. And basically, he uh, has these events. And the events are fun, so people come to them. And as part of the event, then, he has law enforcement officials, people in the neighborhood community, usually people of color. And they go and they have conversations. And it's guided conversations. And so that's part of it. And they do see a, a, at least a temporary decrease uh, in and hostility towards the police and hostility towards people of color after this. Okay, that's good. And uh, how about, you know, some people would say this whole thing isn't, today really isn't so much a black and white issue. It's really more of a conservative, liberal, conservative, progressive issue. Um, what would you say to that thought? Uh, I think there's something to that. I think politics is very important uh, what way in which we develop our racial attitudes. And so I do say think that there is something to, uh, we need to look at our political polarization divide as much as our racial one. But there's no reason why what I'm advocating for today can also be with it for that as well. Okay. But it's probably the case that sometimes people uh, mislabel the issue. Um, yeah. And it's there is maybe more of a, a political, social there probably is. conflict than just racial. Yeah. But it happens both, obviously. Sure. So how about let's use an example of uh, affirmative action in university enrollment. And I think you uh, wrote a paper or article. On I think it was in one of my books on it. Yeah. OK. So first of all, how could can you identify um, where people from a colorblind perspective would come from? people from an anti-racist perspective, and then how you would address it coming from your mutual accountability model. Well, what my model would do is take some people who say, we don't want affirmative action because we're, we're, we're equal now, we're fair now. And others who say, we need affirmative action because we have to end some of the social structures that, you know, 
that uh, support white supremacy and bring them together and, and train them and teach them how to have conversations and see what solutions they come at it. And I'd be interested in see what would happen there. Okay, and what is the, um, the rationale behind the um, anti-racist perspective? If you could go into more detail about that. Yeah, that racism is structural, it's not individualistic, and affirmative action is designed to deal with structural racism. You don't have to have personal prejudice uh, in order to need affirmative action, because affirmative action is about outcomes. So, so they would look at affirmative action kindly. And from the colorblind perspective? Uh, that perspective is that for action is is uh, using race as an identifier as to how we're going to treat people. And then time we do that, that is wrong. Therefore, we should stop it. Right. And certainly some of the cases that have been publicized over, around white people mm -hmm. um, suing the university saying, hey, you didn't give me a chance because of my race. But when you listen to uh, Lowry and McCorder, they say this really hurts black people. Mm -hmm. What they would say, it's uh, disempowering to black people mm -hmm. because um, they're not getting, for some people, mm -hmm. they're not getting into the university based on their qualifications. Yeah. And so they're not going to do as well. And they would say it's better to have all people get into the universities um, that are right for their level. But they, at the same time, they say they do recognize, well, this would mean there would be less black people than yeah. some of these, you know, like Ivy League type universities. And you can tell that they bemoan that fact. So how would um, you address that sentiment? Yeah, uh, you know, for me, the solution is going to be whatever we work out. So uh, if the solution is to get rid of affirmative action. Then if as long as people have input in the process, then that's fine. I don't think that's going to be the solution. Uh, I do, I do think there's something to be said that affirmative action may harm communities of color. And I think that should be, you know, that should be looked into. Uh, so, uh, so I'm not denying that. But I don't think the solution is to get rid of affirmative action. We need to talk through because affirmative action is meeting some needs in the African community, Hispanic community, and maybe there's a better way to meet those needs. Okay. So the mutual accountability model is is not nearly as, say, positional as the other two. It's more like we don't know. It's a necessarily the best way. We don't know where this is going to turn out. You're yeah. not, you know, dying on this hill or that hill. You're like, let's talk about this and work it out and see where we can get. Yeah, because once you start saying this is the solution and everyone must, must adhere to it, then you're no longer doing the cloud conversation approach. And so... It is dogmatic in that sense. It's not dogmatic saying this particular solution, we have to uh, abide by it. So that makes me wonder, are there other more, um, call them a centrist position that um, is more of a position uh, in between the two camps? There may be, but I really haven't articulated that. So I wouldn't know how to articulate it right now. Okay. So... Um, before um, writing this last book, which was uh, Beyond Racial Division, published uh, this year, you had said something in the effect of, you've already written all you need to about yeah. race. It, it's been said, and you can uh, right. research other issues. But then 2020 came along, and you felt compelled to write this, which I think is truly necessary. Um, what do you feel still needs to be said? Um, Maybe you don't want to write it, but maybe yeah. you think somebody else should. 
Well, like what I'm doing right stuff. now as a social scientist, I'm trying to do research to show that cloud conversation works. And my research fails, I want to learn from it so that I can uh, do further research till we can get to work. Because once we get to work, then, then we can contrast a successful cloud conversation approach to a successful diversity training approach. Okay, so now it's more about research than... Right now for me, yes. Okay. There's others who are taking up the mantle in other ways, but right now for me, that's what I need to do. So um, who are some of the other writers, thinkers on the subject that you think are relevant for today? Uh, Isaac Adams is one, he's a pastor. Uh, Mark DeMoz, I think offers some insight into this in the church setting. Uh, see, uh, Jarvis Williams, did I say Jarvis? Yeah, Jar no, no, I did. Jarvis Williams is another pastor who writes about these sort of subjects. So those are a few names, yeah. Okay. And uh, how about, are you hopeful for some positive models of diversity, equity, and inclusion in the corporate world? Um, are you familiar with uh, Chloe Valdery's theory of enchantment and what she does? I'm hearing about it. I've not really had a chance to dive down deep into it yet. So, that sounds very promising from what I've heard. Yeah, it seems like there should be a right way to do it because mm -hmm. I know she does talk about a, very intentionally more about a collaborative approach. Yeah, I think so. I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not drilled down into it, so I can't for sure, but I think so. It seems like there's still obvious an obvious need for a lot of people mm -hmm. to be educated about matters of race or gender yeah. and how to get along with other people. Yeah. All righty. Well, uh, this is some great stuff. I'm, I'm so glad you wrote this book. I'm so get, glad I discovered and got a chance to interview you. I think um, it's really helpful. Um, of course, people aren't talking and thinking and reading nearly as much about the subject now as they were two years ago. Yeah. But it'll continue to be an important topic. So I'm very thankful for people that are ne negotiating some sort of common ground or middle on this. So um, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to Charge. We've been with Dr. George Yancey. So check out his book. The link is available below, Beyond Racial Division, A Uf Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. Dr. Yancey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Peace to everyone. All right.